so we are talking about relationships this semester. Last week was our first one, right? Yep. And we talked about how basically God made us for relationship, not just with him, but with other people, and how sin has made a mess of that. And um, I want to build uh, tonight on the mess that sin has made, because it's important to understand more of the dynamics of how that works and how um, it ends up sabotaging what we hope for uh, and how we live in relationship. Um, if you remember the picture in the book of Genesis, which is the first book in the Bible, which speaks about the creation, it also speaks about uh, the fall and how sin came into the world and what it did, what a mess it made. And the picture in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, is very striking. After Adam and Eve have sinned, have rebelled against God, have basically said, your word is not sufficient, we would rather trust what looks good and seems good to us instead of what you say. After that happens, they see that they are naked, they're afraid. So they sow fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, the reason this image is almost comical is because fig leaves are huge, but they have huge holes. They're really bad for covering things that you want to cover. But it's an apt picture of our condition. Because what you have to understand is that not all fig leaves are physical. When we put our trust in coverings that don't really do the job, we will see the same issues that we see in Adam and Eve. Fear, insecurity, alienation, blame shifting. Now Isaiah, the prophet, explains more about this dynamic. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. Anytime we trust in something less than the true God, we have fallen into what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is not just an issue for kind of ancient people that like build little statues and whatnot. It's actually one of the most important concepts to understand all of life and humanity and the cultures that uh, human beings have created from the very beginning. So we're going to look at chapter 44 of Isaiah, which is one of the greatest chapters to get at the dynamics of this issue of idolatry. And we're going to look at three things particularly, how idolatry works, how it enslaves us, and where healing comes from. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to actually start reading Isaiah 44 at verse 9. Verse 9 of Isaiah 44. Follow along with me. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool 
and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Then he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig into this passage. Lord, we do thank you that you um, don't leave us to grovel in our brokenness and our idolatry, but you come to the rescue. And we pray, Lord, that that would set us free from all of the things that we think are more trustworthy, more reliable than you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dick Kies, who for years ran a ministry outside of Boston, um, Labrie Ministry, which is French for the shelter. It's a great place if you ever want to go, just be able to ask questions and study and kind of work in the garden and have some humanity restored. Um, he said this in a book about idolatry. He said, idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Apostle Paul associates the dynamics of human greed, lust, craving, and coveting with idolatry. It's in Ephesians and in Colossians. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. 
All too often, it is found on center stage. At the most basic level, idols are what we make out of the evidence for God within ourselves and in the world if we do not want to face the face of God himself in his majesty and holiness. Now, I think that's a profound insight. Maybe some of you have uh, studied Freud and his theory of totems. Anybody study that at all? He had the idea that basically, because the world is such a scary place, that human beings have this tendency to put their trust in sort of either inanimate objects or things they think are powerful and to set themselves up these things that they can worship that they think will protect them and care for them. I actually think that that's true explanation of idolatry, but it's not a good explanation for the guide of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is not the kind of lower G God that you can manipulate to do what you want when you want. If anything, the God of the Bible is terrifying, right? Not to be trifled with. And yet the reality is true. We would rather worship something that seems more reliable and more controllable, something that we can manipulate to get what we want, rather than face God, who himself seems to always operate according to his own agenda. And that's uncomfortable and scary. As we look at this passage in Isaiah, we see that we make idols out of the Lord's good gifts. Now, where do you see that? Well, what is the stuff that the idol worshiper uses to make idols? Steel? iron, whatever was the metal that's being talked about here, is part of God's good creation. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he put them in a cultivated part of creation, and he told them to take dominion over the whole rest of the cosmos. In other words, you are to go from this place to glorify me and enjoy me by bringing out all the God-glorifying potential that I've built into the creation. It's part of what was going on when God tells Adam to name all the animals. To name in the Bible is more significant than just giving an arbitrary label. It means to understand the essence of a thing. It's the basis for scientific inquiry. It's the basis for saying God has built a world full of God-glorifying potential, and we are to work it. We are to take the garden, the cultivated part, and spread that. But they don't do that. Even though God had given them all the trees of the garden for food, except one, they refused to eat what was given. And so you see in this passage, the good gift that God has given, the trees of the field, they're taking and using as a God substitute. We always make idols out of good gifts. And the more beautiful and wonderful the gift, it tends to be the more powerful the idol. This is why sex is such a powerful idol and why relationships, one of God's greatest gifts, can become one of the most powerful idols. In Ezekiel, actually, this is, a, this is an amazingly graphic, um, strong passage in Ezekiel 16, but basically God says to his people Israel, like, I've made you beautiful, and you took the beauty that I gave you and used it to entice other lovers. And he goes so far as to say, and besides that, you're actually a bad businesswoman. 
O my people, because at least prostitutes make people pay for it. You pay your lovers to sleep with you. Strong. Why does God speak so strongly about idolatry? Why does he speak of it like it's adultery? Because God is a jealous God. And you know what? That's the best thing I could tell you tonight. That God actually cares so much that it rips his heart apart when we give the love that should be given to him to things that are less than he is. Understanding idolatry actually helps us get to core issues. Rather than just trying to tweak surface behavior, rather than just trying to fix our feelings, worship is actually beneath all of those things. Now, it's not the sole explanation of why we are the way we are. We're embodied people, and the fall has affected even our body, even our biology, even our brain chemistry, okay? So don't hear this wrong. But at a very profound level, how we worship plays into and is more fundamental than how we feel and how we act. And so often, I think, we diagnose superficially the problems of humanity and of our world because we don't understand that at the essence, human beings were made to worship God. And if you don't factor that into the way you understand psychology, biology, sociology, economics, you are going to have a superficial understanding of the way the world works. That's the Bible's contention. Idolatry is getting at a core issue. There has to be, uh, this, this thing is so fascinating, this quote by Tim Keller, a great pastor up in New York City. Think about this, he said this. If you pull up your fears by their roots, you will find your idols clinging to them. There's always a connection between the trail of pain in your life and the ways you have tried to guard yourself from being hurt that way again. And the idols congregate around the roots of your fears. But the tragedy is, idol worship actually makes you more vulnerable, not less. And we'll talk about that in the next point. I've always loved this quote from Charles Spurgeon because here's one of the fascinating things. He was a great Baptist preacher uh, from the 1800s. And I've always loved this quote because I think so often people, people, especially if they've been raised in church, maybe they have kind of lived under the idea that God is kind of like an extra angry Santa Claus. You know, that he's got this list and he's checking it twice to find out who's naughty and nice, and none of us really measure up. So you better try to, like, you know, stay out of his sight or at least not be noticed. Um, and, and I think that what's interesting is uh, Martin Luther said that before we actually break any of the Ten Commandments, we always break the first commandment. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Before we break any of the Ten Commandments, we almost always imagine God to be something less than he is. And, and thus we, in a sense, feel justified in looking elsewhere for protection or for peace or for hope. Here's the way Charles Spurgeon put it. When I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin was a trifle. No big deal. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, 
I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. But that is the great lie that we fall prey to over and over again. It was the great lie that Adam and Eve fell prey to. The temptation was to begin to begin to think that God actually wasn't good, that he was holding out on you. And that's what led them to say, well, if he's holding out on us, if he's not really good, then we're going to do whatever we damn well please. That's the way the dynamic works. But as Isaiah describes idolatry, I hope you picked up on this. Idolatry is really absurd. Uh, at some level, it's almost laughable. You are supposed to read this and say, that's ridiculous. But I think we often read it and say, that's ridiculous how those people could you know, put their hope in a block of wood that they themselves cut down. How could the thing that you yourself fashioned have more power than the one who made it and didn't drink and then got faint from lack of water? Like, that's just insane. And, and that's what Isaiah is trying to get you to see. The, 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 the idol worshiper is, is really out of touch with reality. They, they really are like involved in this absurdity, right? Idols are blind and ignorant. And in the Hebrew, there's like a double entendre here. When it says that they know nothing, their eyes are plastered over. Which is it talking about? The idols made out of stone or wood or the idol worshipers? And the fact is it's both. Because one of the most profound things that we need to understand about worship is we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. And worshiping something less than the true God brings more vulnerability into your life. More vulnerability. Think of it this way. If you worship winning and always winning, you know what happens? You become so anxious about winning that you probably win less because you're so self-conscious. And when you do win, you can't really enjoy it because you need to win again tomorrow. As David Brooks, New York Times columnist says, for college students today, life is a continual aptitude test. And you know that, and you're one failure away from your whole life falling apart. Maybe one unwise post on Instagram You've heard those kinds of stories, right? About the lady that made this racist tweet, gets on a plane, and 14 hours later, like it's went viral, and her life is in shambles. She's been fired, right? Doesn't that freak you out? When you think about relationships, like there aren't any rules anymore. So, so like, what if you say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, and all of a sudden everybody's talking about you? What an idiot you were. It's a scary time to be alive, particularly if you've put your hope and your trust in yourself. Dan Allender, a Christian counselor, I like this illustration. He talks about, you know, let's say you go out on a date and, and you're basically, you know, maybe you're having coffee, maybe you're just, you know, having a glass of water and, and sharing a meal together, and you take a drink of water, and instead of drinking, it actually dribbles all down the front of your shirt. And he's like, how are you going to feel? Probably mortified. And yet here's the question. Is that a sin? No. But you know what it's done? It's revealed the fact that you're not as together and cool as you think you are. And that's awful, because we're always 
fearful that somebody is going to see through the covering, see us for who we really are. And if they see us for who we really are, who would actually want to be with us? That's the weirdest thing about dating, right? It's kind of simultaneous. You're trying to be open and vulnerable, let yourself be known, but you also know that you're being auditioned at the same time. And it's a weird thing. It makes you totally self-conscious and not able to be yourself. Idolatry is absurd, and it actually makes you more vulnerable, not less, as I said. And I love how God exposes the absurdity of idolatry here with biting sarcasm. Because sometimes you need to be able to look at the things you're trusting in and say, hold on, this is kind of ridiculous. You know, it's easy to see this, of course, in people that would bow down to little statues made of wood. Do you ever see that movie Gladiator? Yeah, there's a little scene where he basically like sets up his little wooden idols and kind of bows down to them. It's easy to see the ridiculousness of that. But it's equally absurd the kinds of things we worship, like our ability to get people to like us or our grades or our talent, right? So if it's absurd, then how come we can't just turn away from it? If it's absurd, why does it have such power over us? And the answer, Isaiah says, is because idols enslave us. They bind us and they blind us. And they even create delusional fields all around them. Let me explain. Uh, Idolatry blinds us. Like I said, it's astonishing how absurd idolatry is, but it's even more astonishing that we don't see it. Tim Keller says it's because idols are lies. You see how they, like they, they, those words are used interchangeably. You can't even say that this lie in your right hand is a lie. And I'll talk about that in a second. But, but the, even when you're looking to something that is a lie, that isn't real, that isn't a God, that isn't something worthy of your trust, when you do that, it, you tend to have all these other lies that congregate around it. Let me give you an example. If you're worshiping popularity or what people think about you, then pretty soon you become prey to all kinds of other lies. Like, I need this person to like me. Like, my life is not complete if these people don't like me or let me be part of their group. Or I can make this person like me if only I do X. When I'm popular, maybe then I can finally rest and not worry about what people think about me. They're all lies. And they congregate around the original lie, which is you are sufficient to create a world in which you are completely safe. It's not possible. Only a deluded heart can explain our idolatry. I think this is so powerful where it talks about this. Look at verse 18. They know not. Again, this double entendre. It's talking about the idol worshipers and the idols. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers. No one can step back and just ponder, what am I doing? Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? Listen to verse 20. He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart 
has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Feeding on ashes, what an image. Have you ever eaten ashes? They don't fill you up. They don't fill you up, right? Think about being a people pleaser. I mean, you were made to bask in the approval of another, God. The one who says, this is very good. You were made to be part of that very good. And, and the way to be free from what other people think about you is not to just say, I'm going to quit caring what other people think about me. You can't jury rig your heart that way because you were made to care about what another thinks about you. It's built into your DNA. Rather, People pleasers need to realize that they're too easily satisfied. You'd settle for the approval of mere human beings? That's feeding on ashes, and it will never fill you up. Idols are lies that preserve the illusion of self-control. But the problem is their limits are your limits because you're the one who gives them power. They have no power. And so the tragedy is we turn to idols when we feel powerless and afraid, and they end up making us even more powerless and afraid because idols can never forgive you when you fail them. They basically say, do this and you will live. And the problem is you can't do it. And therefore, they always remind you of your failure. Idolatry blinds us and it binds us. And in verse 20, there's a a really graphic picture of this. He says the idol worshiper cannot look at the thing in the right hand and say this is a lie. Now, in the right hand in the Bible is the hand of power. Sorry if you're left-handed. It's just the way it is. In the Bible, the right hand is power. And so what it's saying is the thing that you trust as your superpower, it's psychologically devastating to admit that that thing actually has no power. The only way you can actually do it is to transfer your trust to something else. It would be like pulling the rug out from your own feet to say that this thing in my right hand is a lie. You can't do it. You're in a hopeless bind, the ultimate catch 22. So what are we going to do? What is God going to do? And that's what I love about this passage. Look at what God does. In verse 21, we end verse 20 with this impossible situation. The thing in your right hand that you're trusting in is a lie, but you can't see it and you can't get rid of it. You can't let it go. And what does he say to us that we need to do? Remember these things of Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And look at this. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. Like when God heals us, it actually restores creation to its proper place. Rather than being a God substitute, the trees now actually praise God in union with human beings. You know, the creation now is not sinful. The creation is frustrated because human beings are not serving their role 
of bringing out all the God-glorifying potential and beautifying this world. Because man, the crown of creation, is not serving God as we should be. The whole creation is frustrated and is groaning, Romans 8 tells us, until the day of the glorious liberty of the children of God, when they will serve the way they are to serve in freedom, and the creation will finally be able to be what it was made to be. So we don't look for a disembodied existence up on a cloud someday. We look for the new heavens and the new earth that come down, everything in its proper place, glorifying God without brokenness, without sin. But notice the three things he says here. He calls us to remember, and remember in particularly who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. And here's the key to healing from idolatry. You already have in God what you're tempted to try to get from an idol. And the only way that you can let go of the thing in your right hand is to realize you don't need it. You don't need it. Are you trying to find hope that you could secure by what you're able to do and who you're able to control? You don't need that. The one who made you and loves you has a plan for you. And he's sovereign over all things. You don't need it. You don't need the approval of men when the one who made you rejoices over you as singing, as it says in the book of Zephaniah. Remember who he is. Remember who he is and what he's done. And then he invites us to return. But notice this, the invitation to return is after his redemption. He does not say, hey, you need to fix this. You need to come back to me and grovel before me. And if you really are really, really sad about it, maybe I'll have grace or mercy on you. That's not the Christian idea at all. He says, return to me. Why? Because I have redeemed you. God initiates and God does what is required for us to be reconciled. And that's worth singing about. And that's what he tells us to do next. He tells us to sing. The key to the Christian life is grateful, remembering who God is and what he's done, rejoicing, rejoicing in it until it begins to warm our heart and transfer our trust from idols to the one of peerless worth, as we just sang about. I love that verse. Tis the look that melted Peter. You know what that's talking about? That's after Peter betrayed Jesus three times, even though he swore he'd never do it. Have you ever made that kind of vow to God and then broken it? Of course you have. And Jesus looks him in the eye. And you know, the only gospel that records that detail is the gospel of Mark. You know what's significant about that? Well, Mark was the protege of Peter. Peter's Peter's story is the one that writes, Mark writes down. Mark's gospel is Peter's perspective, and he wants to make everybody know that he saw Jesus' eyes, and Jesus looked at him with love, and it was too much, and he went away, and he broke, and he went back to fishing, <laughs> right? Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. You know what that is? It's from the book of Acts 
when Stephen is being condemned to death as a blasphemer. That's why he's being stoned, because he worships Jesus. And the Jewish leadership says that's blasphemy. And they carry out the sentence, the death penalty, by stoning for a blasphemer. And what does he see? He sees Jesus. The only time Jesus is pictured standing Do you know why he's standing? Because standing is what a defense attorney does in the Roman court of law. And let me tell you, Jesus never takes a case that he will lose. And that's the look you need to see when you're tempted to grovel in your sin and your brokenness and your shame is that Jesus stands, he rises to your defense before God. That's the kind of stuff that needs to pierce our heart. That's the stuff that, you know, even if you know it, you need to reflect on it. You need to thank God for it and rejoice in God until it begins to warm your heart. And it's not just head knowledge, but begins to pierce your heart. So what does this have to do with relationships? That is what we're talking about this semester. Well, it actually has everything to do with relationships. Because idolatry is at work in all of us, and it's making a mess of our relationships. Like I said, if you follow the trail of pain in your life or someone's life, it will lead you to their idols, the core strategies they pursued to stay safe and feel in control. But these are also the places where they're most vulnerable and afraid because the fig leaves don't really work. And deep down, we all know it. The idolatry of relationships in particular makes good relationships really impossible to develop. Tim Keller in his book on marriage, excellent book. If I had to recommend one book on marriage, it's his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says that one of the biggest problems today with thinking about marriage is that it's been both overly romanticized, and so people are looking for the perfect partner who will complete them in every way, and at the same time, it's despised because we despair of finding that perfect person who will complete us. We live in this kind of tension. A former campus minister, a friend of mine, John Stone, says the same thing has happened to our friendships. He says that we long for it, but we can't believe it's possible at the very same time. We so long for friendships that we've put too much weight on them because we want them to be everything. And of course, we have ways of auditioning people to see if they really can be depended on? Of course they can't, and neither can we. In a consumer culture, you see, it's so difficult to pursue relationships not for what we can get out of them, but for what we can give. But that is what the Bible calls us to. Have to remember, and I think this is a really important thing, relationships, are not the ultimate goal of your life. They're not an end in themselves. And if you strive for relationships just to have relationships, they will break under the weight of having to provide all the joy and meaning for your life. There's only one thing big enough to give your life to, and that's the kingdom of God. You know what C.S. Lewis says about friendship? That friendship has to be about something. Has to be about something bigger than the friendship. And so does marriage, actually. I always say this when I do weddings, that marriage is about more than just marriage. 
It's about the kingdom and advancing the kingdom, whether through the call to singleness or the call to marriage. Both of them are actually countercultural ways to live in a lot of ways. And both of them require deep belief in the nature and promise of God to move forward in them. Otherwise, we're just kind of paralyzed in fear. Dan Allender has a great book. He's a Christian counselor. He's got a book on how teenagers raise parents. It's a great book if your parents are wanting to know how to raise teenagers because he flips it over. As a matter of fact, the first chapter is titled, Whose Idols Are Really in the Way? It's so easy, of course, for your parents to see your idols and for you to see theirs. And any good relationship has to begin with you understanding that you're worse than you think you are. Now, you might think, well, that's a, that's a stupid thing to say. Like, I want to I feel good about myself, and how can I be in a, in a relationship with somebody if I feel terrible about myself? Well, that's not the only thing I have to say tonight, but it is the starting point. If idolatry is true, you are worse than you think. My friend John Stone again said it this way, I have to begin by assuming that someone will struggle to be my friend because of who I am. I, I hear people say, well, you know, before you can find a good friend, you need to be a good friend. And I would say, actually, no, before you find a good friend, you actually need to realize that you're a terrible friend because that's the reality. He says, I must assume in a deep and real way that I am very hard to be a friend to and very hard to deal with. And let me tell you, that's what marriage will help you learn. Right? That's what we're talking about in therapy. Virtually every week, I watch my wife cry and I try to get a sense of, oh, this is really her reality. Because I'm usually clueless to it. And so are we all in most of our relationships. We think, you know, Dan Haller said one time, the worst thing is to be loved by somebody who thinks they're really good at loving. You want to be loved by people that know they're terrible and have to get God's grace to help them love other people. So you're worse than you think, but here's the good news, and we're going to close with this story from Hosea. The gospel is so much better than you could have ever imagined. And that's why the book of Hosea, I think, is in the Bible. Now, this is a strange book. If you've never read the book, let me just tell you what this book is about. God tells his prophet Hosea, literally says this in chapter one, and pardon the language here, but this is the Bible. Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom. It's not a pretty word because sin and adult, spiritual adultery is not a pretty thing. God says, basically, Hosea, you will never understand what it feels like for me to marry myself to my people who refuse to be faithful. You'll never understand that unless you go marry Gomer, who runs away again and again and again after other lovers. And again and again, God says, go take her back. Go take her back. And God says, you're never going to understand my heart from my people and what it feels like to be me unless you experience this. That's remarkable. In this book, God exposes his very heart to us. He's torn. This is literally what he says. We're going to read this in Hosea chapter 11. He's literally torn. He knows that we deserve judgment. He says, how can I give you up? Listen to this. Hosea 11 says this. How can I give you up, 
Oh, Ephraim. Oh, Ephraim is like a, like a pet lover's name that God has for Israel. It's always used that way. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. It's amazing. The lion of Judah will roar, and his children will come running to him. My friend Les Newsom, who used to do RUF and is kind of famous for his talks on dating, um, I, I was reading uh, the end of one of his sermons where he talks about this Hosea passage. His words are so powerful, so I'm going to use them to close tonight. Here's what he says. He says, now what is God talking about here at the end of Hosea about the roaring? What God means is that there is a lion coming, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, God is predicting, is going to come and die on the cross. And at the very end of the experience, all the Gospels report that he cried out before he died. Some of the Gospel writers tell us that he said, it is finished. But what was finished? It's a big question with a really long answer. But I want you to see from Hosea's perspective what that roaring accomplished. When God roared in Jesus, he married a whore and began her eventual healing. We see it is the reason God had to make Hosea marry Gomer. If you just tried to be friends with someone like Gomer, you wouldn't make it. There's nothing worth the friendship there. Once you've had three nights sitting up with her till 3 a.m. talking to her about her problems and she still doesn't get it, what do you do? Well, you turn on your do not disturb that fourth night. Why? Because before, you were only doing what you were doing to be nice. You weren't really bound up in their problems. Her problems weren't really your problems. But if you married her, her wounds become your wounds. Her despair becomes your despair. God says, unless you're married to a completely screwed up and messed up person, you will never know what it's like for me to be married to you. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. When God does what he does in our salvation, he binds up his joy with our joy. Listen to this. God will not experience unmixed joy again until we stand before him holy, happy, and perfect. He's that committed to you. Do you hear what he said? When you marry, their problems become your problems. And that's what God has done, friends. That's what God has done. He's married himself to us. He's bound up his joy with our joy. That's why it breaks his heart when we look to other lovers. When he marries, our problems become his problems. It actually says this in Isaiah. In all their distress, talking about his people, 
I too am distressed. You can take that to the bank. Only that can give you the security to love beyond what is reasonable. I think so often we, we perform little cost-benefit analysis all the time. What is reasonable? I am so glad that Jesus did not enter into that kind of accounting. That he went beyond what is reasonable and died for sinners. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us in this, he says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is what we need to do to fight against our fear. Gratefully rejoice and remember who he is and what he's done because we can take it to the bank. Let's pray and then the worship team is going to come up and we are going to gratefully remember and rejoice and celebrate the love that will never let us go.